Med Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Darvo here, and you're listening to Med Conversations. I'm sitting here with Beck Fosky. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. How's your day been, Beck? It's been excellent. Awesome. Uh, today, we're going to talk about renal failure. And I'm going to go through a case, then I'm going to talk a little bit about dehydration, and uh, then I'm going to talk a little bit about acute tubular necrosis. So let's get started on the case. So an old lady is brought in very confused, slurring something about being knocked over by her livestock and lying in a field for three days. She's pretty hard to take a history from, but she has some worrying signs. Her heart rate is 120, BP is 95 on 40, JVP is not visible, cap refill is 4 seconds, she has dry mucous membranes, poor tissue turga, sunken orbits, and swollen and bruised thighs, presumably where the sheep fell on her. So what's this lady's biggest issue, do you reckon, Beck, at the moment, like, biggest acute issue? The things that stand out to me are the heart rate and the blood pressure. So Mm. tacky at 120 beats a minute and Mm. hypotensive at 95 on 40. It's not a good sign, is it? No. And it seems to be probably from the dehydration because she has so many other signs of dehydration. When you get asked to do a fluid review, what do you think of? Is that something that interns get called to do all the time? What are your kind of go-to signs? Well, looking at the OBS first, the heart rate and the blood pressure, mm. um, I guess that's where I'd start with for the severe dehydration. Mm. But the capillary refill, it's nice, quick and easy. Just yeah, it's from, a good the, one. from the end of the bed, you can see if they've got dry mucous membranes. I'm not sure how good a sign that is. Mm-hmm. Um, tissue turga. I just don't, I'm not confident in my knowledge of what normal tissue turga is. I don't have a very good baseline, I don't think. I've seen, have you ever seen it when the tissue turga is decreased and you're really dehydrated? I don't think so, no, not really. So you have? I have, and so, I think it's, it's one of those things where you see it and okay. you go, ah, oh, that's oh, what yeah. they mean. Turga. <laughs> JVP, though, if I can't see a JVP... I'm more likely to think that it's because I can't see the JVP yeah, rather exactly. than that, that exactly. it's not visible. So. Exactly. But for people who are really good at JVPs and very experienced, it's probably it's very useful. Same. But I have the same problem. Tally and Connor have a really good, Tally and O'Connor, sorry, have a really good page in their famous uh, book on clinical examination about the signs of dehydration and what the different signs mean in terms of how dehydrated a person is. So they say that in early dehydration, when a person has lost 5% of their total body fluid, so that's about 2.5 litres, the the patient will have mild thirst, dry mucous membranes, and concentrated urine. And then at moderate dehydration, which is more 5 to 8% of total body water, it will be the same signs, obviously worse, and uh, reduced skin turga, which is what we are just talking about, and tachycardia. So that's an important one to remember, that tachycardia is the first vital sign to go off classically in uh, someone who's dehydrated. The next step, severe dehydration, 9 to 12% of total body water lost, decreased eyeball pressure, not quite sure how you test that one. I think it would be with a tachometer, which is what they use to test for glaucoma, but... I don't don't know how how many medical wards... Oh, that's common, that's common, yeah. Oh, really? All EDs will have that. And medical wards? Oh, well, they'll be in the hospital, we can go get one. True. So um, the medical student. I'm surprised I haven't been sent to fetch one. <laughs> Collapsed veins, sunken eyes, gaunt face, 
postural hypotension, so that's where you do it, a lying and um, an a standing one, and if there's a drop from the standing to the lying of more than 20. Uh, that, more than 20 systolic, more than 20 systolic. More than 20 systolic, diastolic. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, and then oliguria, which is less than 400 mils in 24 hours, which mm. is obviously a really good sign for people with a catheter, which is why we use fluid balance charts. Mm. And then finally, very severe, um, when the patient is lost more than 12% of their body water, they'll be comatose with signs of shock. And the other sign there is they're moribund, um, which means, as I just <laughs> looked up, um, like the word suggests, sort of bound for mortality. So someone someone who's literally on their deathbed. Mm-mm. Absolutely. I'm always really interested with this kind of stuff. Like these signs have been around probably for hundreds of years. And with a recent movement of evidence-based medicine to actually test them out after all these centuries of use, which ones are the best ones? And there was a study in 2012 done in Tokyo which found that none of the tests that I've just talked about have good sensitivity, but there are some with good specificity. And sunken eyes is really good. Delayed capillary refill is apparently really good. And the best one, and most oddly, is having a dry axilla. Mm, the old non-sweaty armpit. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how you're supposed to apply that knowledge. The way they did it in the in the study is they got a tissue and they dabbed it and then they like compared the weight. But I think you'd have to be pretty meticulous and dedicated doctor to do that. Again, send your medical student. <laughs> anyway, back to the case. So this lady's come in. She's very dehydrated. She's not making much sense. First thing you're going to do is you will do a CT brain just to look for a hemorrhage. Um, but that was normal, so that's good, that's reassuring. And obviously a full battery of tests would be done on someone like this, but the ones that really stand out were her UECs, urea and electrolytes, which test kidney function. And it was found she had a high creatinine, 350, low EGFR, that's glomerular filtration rate of 15, high urea of 12.2, and if you compare the urea and creatinine to get the urea and creatinine ratio, which we'll explain a little bit more later, it's at 35. I'll just um, just say something actually about the EGFR. It isn't the actual GFR. It's not no, the glomerular point. filtration rate. It's the estimated glomerular filtration rate. Mm-hmm. And often when a patient has acutely had damage to their kidney, <coughs> the, um, there's still a bit of creatinine that... Um, Sorry, the creatinine hasn't really had time to build up yet. So sometimes the EGFR, which is calculated using the creatinine, mm. um, may actually be an overestimation. So in this patient, perhaps her GFR isn't actually 15 mils per minute, as the could EGFR suggests. It could even be worse. Oh, dear. So what do you think of adrenal failure? How do you define it? Uh, I would probably use those in investigations. So mm. the GFR... Mm. Um, being down and the creatinine and urea both being yeah. up. The one I tend to use the most out of those three is EGFR, and that seems to be the most commonly accepted measure. Um, like if you're, if you're writing out imaging slips and stuff, they're not that interested in the creatinine, they're more interested in the GFR. Mm-hmm. So, talking about the epidemiology of acute renal failure, it's very common, um, unsurprisingly. It's observed in 5% of all hospital admissions, and 30% of patients admitted to ICU, so very common. But the thing is, these patients don't often come in with just renal failure. They're often 
under the cardiology unit or some other unit that you know doesn't specialize in kidneys and so sometimes it's it's difficult for these um, other teams to manage it properly which maybe has something to do with the fact that the mortality is very very high 50 percent mm. in patients with acute renal failure which might also be confounded often patients develop acute renal failure because yeah, they're very point. sick for other reasons exactly a yeah, good point it's hard to tease these things apart so presentation of acute renal failure. The symptoms are very vague, so just kind of feeling sick type symptoms. General malaise, nausea and vomiting, anorexia, lethargy and weakness, muscle cramps, pruritus. So it's, it can be difficult to pick up if you don't have mm. the right tests um, and if you don't have the right kind of past medical history and stuff. Uh, there's a lot of those symptoms have thousands of causes. Mm. Pruritus because of the urania? Yeah, that's right, that's right. And similarly, the signs aren't terribly specific either. Uh, I divide them into fluid signs and electrolyte signs. So if you're not excreting fluid properly, it's going to go somewhere. And these people often get pulmonary or peripheral edema. And uh, they'll have oliguria and anuria. And then the electrolyte-related signs, confusion, seizures, arrhythmia, asterixis, which is that hand flap, um, uremic fetal, and uh, uremic frost, which I can't say are signs I've personally encountered. But. Mm. Well, I, I actually thought that I had encountered uremic fetal the other day. Um, we had a patient in acute renal failure who had horrible smelling breath, and I thought, that's it, this is uremic fetal, but I think he just had bad breath. <laughs> apparently that the, the true uremic fetal smells like urine. Ah, uh, okay. This so guy just smelled like he hadn't had just, a chance to brush his teeth in a while. Yeah. Some Colgate. Uh, uremic frost is where you get like the all the urea and other waste products actually kind of permeate through to the skin and create this like frost on the skin, which is why um, these patients have the pruritus that we mentioned before. Can't say I've seen it, but it must mm. be pretty stark. We'll put a photo up of what it looks website, like. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when you encounter someone with renal failure, you've seen those blood results that we saw before, how, how do you break it up? How do you approach someone like that, trying to figure out what's gone wrong? Because obviously not everyone with renal failure is going to have the same issue. Mm. Well, I was always taught to categorise it as pre-renal, intra-renal or post-renal failure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that what you meant? That's what I do, yeah. I think that's what most people do. But I also find it easy to forget that. Like when I'm kind of walking the corridors to see someone that has these bad blood test results, like, I just happen to think of the, the two things that I've seen more, most recently. Mm. It's hard to have that discipline to go through systematically. Mm. But that, that's something that you know, is always the case in medicine, like going through ECGs systematically is really hard to have that discipline to do it as well. But really, really important, otherwise you'll miss things. So most common causes of pre-renal failure, what do you reckon they are? Uh, dehydration would be the most common. Yeah, yeah. And some kind of a blockage, so... Um, yeah, so like, like a blockage of the, of the of blood, the, so like the renal, renal artery. artery. Yeah. Thrombosis yeah. or something. Yeah, so if you're older, that's what you're thinking, like atherosclerosis with thrombosis. But if you're younger, you're more thinking fibromuscular dysplasia, which is particularly common in women. Well, that's quite rare very rare compared to just your basic shock, your basic dehydration. There's not enough blood getting to those kidneys. Mm. 
and intrarenal causes. What do you think of that? Um, glomerulonephritis. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Uh, also acute tubular necrosis, which I think we'll talk be... about a little, a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Okay. Good. Glomerulonephritis is a very very complex topic. We might mm. cover that another day. Mm. Um, I think they're the main ones I think of. Acute interstitial nephritis. That's another one, yeah. Often related to drugs. Tubular interstitial nephritis? Is that a... Tubular obstruction, which is the last of the four most common. And uh, that's related to things like multiple myeloma, where the tubules that um, the serum or the urine just that it flows through are blocked, causing okay. a problem inside the kidney. And then post-renal failure, what are the first 20 causes of it? The first 20 causes? The first 20 causes. Just an all off, one after another. Obstruction. Obstruction. <laughs> That's it. Obstruction. Um, a particular catheter obstruction is what we always think of. Um, and if, if someone comes to you with renal failure and they've got a catheter in, you've got to, you've got to flush the catheter and, and see if it's working properly. Mm. And then after that, in men, um, BBH, mm. benign prostatic hyperplasia is really common. Mm. 60% of 60-year-olds, 70% of 70-year-olds. I love that. I love it. Clear <laughs> in the epidemiology, I know. <laughs> I wonder how... It, might, it can't be that close to it. Uh, don't don't sorry, ruin no, my I, dreams. I <laughs> won't go there. So what what would you do to figure out which? So you've, you've got the causes in your head, the pre-renal, the intrarenal, post-renal. What kind of tests would you do to differentiate between them? I guess the easiest one would be if it's pre-renal failure brought on mm. by dehydration. Mm -hmm. You could just correct the dehydration system exactly, and fluids, yeah. see if they respond to that. Yeah. But I, I know that could be dangerous. In well, if someone got, who's got a catheter, you're going to you're going to check that first. You're going to make sure the catheter's working. Mm. Um, and particularly if they have signs of dehydration like this lady, you've got to do that first. So yeah, that's the first step. And then urea to creatinine ratio is quite useful as well. So urea is reabsorbed in the kidneys mm -hmm. and creatinine isn't. So naturally you're going to have more urea in the blood than the creatinine because the creatinine shoots straight through. Okay. Um, and so your normal urea to creatinine ratio is 40. If it goes above that, you think pre-renal failure because the kidneys are still working fine. They're just not getting enough blood to them and they reabsorb every little drop they can get. Mm. They can't reabsorb the creatinine. They just don't have the ability, but they can the urea. So that'll go even higher relative to the creatinine. But then if there's a problem inside the kidney, so intrarenal, it goes lower. It starts approaching one because the kidney treats the two substances the same because it's not working properly. Both mm. just shoot straight through. Mm. Okay. Mm. All right, so finally, we're going to cover acute tubular necrosis. So that is interesting because it, um, it covers both causes. It's generally caused by pre-renal failure, but if you starve the kidneys of blood, then obviously they're going to, they're going to start dying, and the first thing that dies um, are the tubular cells, and you get this acute tubular necrosis. So that's by far and away the most common cause. But then that's the ischemic acute tubular necrosis. There's also another group called toxic. Mm -hmm. So what kind of stuff do you know of that we particularly worry about giving people um, with, with um, kind of borderline kidney function because we don't, know, we don't want to knock them off? 
Mm, I know contrast is always a big one. It's a big issue, yeah. That's why every every kind of CT contrast form, they want to know the EGFR. Mm. Um, some antibiotics? Mm, yeah. So gentamicin? Yeah, that's the one. That's the most common one that we worry about. And that's why we need to check the gentamicin levels frequently. Okay. Is that that's an aminoglycoside? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And then endogenous toxins as well. Um, so the most common one is myoglobin from rhabdomyolysis. And this is how acute tubular necrosis was actually discovered. Um, this guy, I forgot his name, Eric Bywaters, I think, was, uh, was working in London during the London bombings. And these people that had the misfortune to be laying under rubble for days and days, so they hadn't been drinking, but they also had these crush injuries. Mm. Um, so they had rhabdomyolysis. And a lot of them developed this renal failure. And he noticed that they all had muddy brown casts in the urine, which is kind of the pathognomonic term for it. If you see that in an MCQ, or less commonly real life, <laughs> you know that that's ATN, acute tubular necrosis. Good thing about it is though it gets better after a few weeks, and most people's kidneys function gets back to completely back to normal. Good. All right, so that's it for um, acute renal failure and acute tubular necrosis and dehydration. There's a few take-home messages that I think are important. How to think about renal failure, so the pre-renal, intra-renal, post-renal. That's it. So the first step is, um, unless there's an obvious contraindication to it, check the response to fluid. If it improves, it's probably pre-renal. And then pre-renal failure can turn into intra-renal failure if you starve the kidneys of blood and they get acute tubular necrosis. Which usually gets better. That's it. And it has muddy brown casts. So to save you from listening to all of that again, we've created a Quizlet, so that will cover the main points that I think are important from it. And some of those studies we talked about, we'll put on a picture of you, Rumi Frost. Thanks very much. See you later. See ya.